0: that God doesn't always do things the way that, that we think he should. That he's a bit out of the box when it, it comes to what we expect him to do. This morning I was talking to, to Ernie as he came in, and his first week he and, and Joni had been back, and, and you know, we were talking about the flooding up there, and, and Ernie said this, he said, I, I know God knows what he's doing, but he should just let us know. <laughs> this is nothing new. The Bible warns us from the beginning, all the way back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Many of us may have have learned this verse at some time. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And yet every time God does this uh, out-of-the-box thing, uh, he does this or that which doesn't make sense to us, we find ourselves somewhat confused, don't we? Well, let me ask you another question. Before we get to the passage today, have you noticed that, that when we read the Jesus stories, when, when you read the Jesus stories, and where do you put yourself in the story? Or, or any story? I know, you know we have a tendency to want to put ourselves in the story as the hero. Rarely are we going to put ourselves in the role of the bank robber. We're going to be the hero that's the detective that solves the case, the guy that gets the bad guy in the end. We tend to kind of put ourselves in the, in the role of Jesus and in a good light whenever we insert ourselves in the story. We're, we're always trying to, to, to love those sinners, right? But the truth of the matter is, uh, is that how we really are? Jesus said to his kind of messed up disciples, come on, guys, are you, are you going to get it? I don't know about you, but oftentimes, too often, but I'll admit it, I'm like those goofed-up disciples, okay? I'm like Peter. I'm like the guys that don't get it, that don't understand what's going on. Well, in today's passage, that's exactly what we're going to find. In this story that we're going to look at today, we're, we're absolutely going to be at a place of going, I can identify with this. I can identify with the people who were completely confused with what he was up to. We've been studying through the book of Mark for the last, uh, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 weeks, something like that. We're going verse by verse from the beginning of Mark. If you haven't been with us, uh, that's okay. It's available online on podcasts, and we're getting very great traction on the podcast. And, and we'd like to welcome those people that, that aren't here right now, that haven't made it back to Sky Valley yet, that are listening on podcast with us this morning. And as we consider this, uh, this passage that we're going to look at, we're going to see what caused them to be confused. And then we're going to step back and we're going to explore what kinds of things we need to know when we hit these kind of situations, because you will hit this kind of situation when God seems to make no sense in terms of what we expect. Now, a little bit of background, as we've been moving through Mark, We've been seeing this kind of escalating conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And the whole theme of Mark, it's a simply a, mo- a fast-moving book, and you could call it, as I've said before, the, the See Jesus, See Jesus Run you know, gospel. It's, it's very simple. Mark is a, is, a, is a gospel of action. He's getting through the story. He's not necessarily doing it in, in chronological order, but he's got a point he's trying to make, and he's got an overaltering point that he's trying to make here that we're going to talk about in just a second. A couple of weeks ago, we were in the passage where a group called the Pharisees, these were the the hyper-zealous guys for the law, the most committed religious people of the day, with all their extra rules and and regulation because they thought God needed some help. God gave His law, He gave His rules, but they put all this big protection around the law in order to help God out. And they they were looking at this, and they were looking at Jesus, and and they decided that Jesus was a total fraud. And so they went out with the Herodians. That was the political leaders of of Herod. They went out with them to try and figure out how they could kill Jesus. The crowds are getting confused. The theologians up in Jerusalem are getting confused, which we're going to see today. And and, and even Jesus' own family, even his own family, was confused Because everything in this book is moving toward the decision that has to be made. There's, there's no middle ground. Is he who he says he is? Is he God in the flesh? Or is he a fake? Is he a myth? Is he a fraud? Or is he indeed the Messiah? And so we're picking up this story now as the crowds have gotten more and more frenzied, so frenzied that he, that he had to go out in a boat on the, on the sea there to, to, to speak to them. He's taken 12 of these guys. He's called together. He, we, he called them apostles, uh, you know, the 12 apostles, 12 disciples. They're kind of like his entourage. They're the folks that are going to be traveling with him. There were other people with him as well, including women that were traveling in his, in his band there. But he, t- he had these, these 12 that were real, the closest ones to him. And today we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 20. Now, we covered this verse last weekend, but we're going to go back and start there and go all the way to the end of Verse 35. So it starts off in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. That's how crazy things had gotten. There's so many people crushing around that they can't even eat. When his family heard about this, his family wasn't present there, but you know, they obviously heard about it wherever they were, Nazareth or wherever they were. They heard about it back home. It says they went to take charge of him. This, this is like they want to go take him into custody. They want to put him in conservatorship. For they said he is out of his mind. They thought he'd had some kind of psychotic break or some kind of breakdown, and, and he needed to be cared for. He needed to be taken care of. And in the meantime, Mark tells us in verse 22 and the teachers of the law, now these aren't the Pharisees uh, we saw before, these are the theologians, the scribes. Uh, it says, who came down from Jerusalem, the teacher of the law came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. In other words, they're acknowledging, yes, something's happening here. Some miracles are happening. This is miraculous. These are phenomenal, but we've investigated and we we tell you, this is not of God. They're saying this is in no way of the Lord. In fact, this is of demons. This is demonic. This is the prince of demons. And so Jesus calls them out, beginning in verse 23. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided... He cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. And then Jesus says something that's, that's, that's pretty harsh here. It's pretty solemn. It's, it's, these are pretty ominous words. He says, I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men... Will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Wow. Why did Jesus say that? Well, it says he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Continues in verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mothers and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated around in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now remember, the whole theme that Mark is pointing to, that he's building up to, this whole grit, this whole tension is: Are you with him or not? Who do you say that Jesus is? And Jesus says, "I don't care if you're a son or daughter of Abraham. I don't even care if you're part of my nuclear family. At the end of the day, you must decide: Are you with God or not? Are you with me or not? Now, if we're honest, you know, can we not be like his family? Can we not be like these these theologians where? We've got God in this, this box that's comfortable for us because we've studied the Bible so much or, or we've listened to some, some TV preacher and we think we know and, and understand everything about Him. Or we, like so many people in our, in our culture, we, we're like the, the, the folks that have made up our own little version of God that, that we're really, what we're really sure He's like. And so I want to explore a little bit this morning about when God's plan doesn't make sense. How should you and I respond? But before we do that, we have, to, we have to address a hanging question before we go on. It comes from our text this morning. Before we go on, we, there's probably more than a couple of you that are wondering about this, this unforgivable sin and thinking, oh my gosh, what is it? What, what's, what's he really talking about there, Wald? I, I, I don't fully understand him. And you may have heard some goofy things about it. I remember back you know, years ago, Lou Ann had a friend, and this lady, she just was hung up on this unforgivable sin, just trying to understand it. And, and I, Actually, I think I was still in seminary at the time, and I was trying to research it and look at it and trying to help her under, understand it. But this is something that people, people are concerned about. You know, have I, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Am I beyond, am I beyond hope? Well, let's look at this for a minute, and we can see. Look at your life notes. There's a little section there that says unforg- an unforgivable sin with a question mark on it. And let me just walk quickly through, the, through what the Bible says about it And then we're going to move to the application of when our God doesn't make sense. So an unforgivable sin, let's look at point one. First of all, you need to understand and always remember that all of Jesus' miracles were done by the power of the Holy Spirit. All of Jesus' miracles were done by the power of the Holy Spirit. We saw this back in the beginning of Mark when, when Jesus was baptized. When he was baptized there in the Jordan River by, by John the Baptist, the, the Spirit came down upon him in the form of a dove, and a, the heavens opened up, and a, and a voice spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we're told that the Spirit descended on him to empower him, to empower him for his ministry. He was God in the flesh, he was God. He retained his nature as God. But Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself of his power when he came in the flesh. It was set aside because he wasn't like Superman. You know, if you remember Clark Kent, Clark Kent was always Superman, right? But he kind of put on those glasses to to fake everybody out, right? And he acted kind of dorky to try and fake everybody out. But he was Superman the whole time. That's not how Jesus was. Jesus was in very nature God, but he emptied himself of his power so he could come and live as a man like you and me. If he, had, if he had been just pretending, just pretending all the time, then he could never have gone to the cross to pay for our sins. He had to do successfully what Adam and Eve failed to do as human beings. He was fully God, fully man. But because he had no sin, our sin could be put upon him. And so that's a big theme throughout the Bible. It's why the, the Bible makes such a big deal that he lived as a man and what he knew, he knew by the power of the Spirit. The, the miracles he did, he did through the power of the Spirit working through him. That's why he says the same Spirit that's available, to, that's available to him is available to us. Now sometimes we have, we've talked about before, there's static on the line. We get in the, in, in the way, but that's a whole other message. But this is all through the Gospels talking about this. Number two, His enemies said that he did them by the power of a demon. In fact, the chief of demons, Beelzebub. You know, we saw that quite clearly. His his arch enemies ran around and said, don't follow him, he's demonic. This isn't of God. Then third, this is why Jesus said they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He's basically saying, "You're, you're you're not blaspheming me. You're blaspheming the Spirit of God. They said that because... They thought he had an impure spirit. And that's how they were believing that he did these things. And then fourthly, Jesus said, This is the only unforgivable sin. So, I don't care what you've done in the past, how horrific it might have been, there is no sin that is unforgivable except for this one thing. Jesus says, if you're running around telling people who are following me, don't follow me because I'm demon-possessed, then you're in deep weeds. Now, I don't know anybody that's done that, okay? It was a small group of people at that point who were doing everything they could to keep people away from the Lord. So if you've said bad things, if you've done bad things, if you've cursed Jesus, even if you've cursed the Holy Spirit, all that can be forgiven. The only unforgivable sin is to claim that Jesus' miracles are demonic and therefore to run around trying to get people not to follow him. So other than that, don't worry about it. Okay, let's move on. As I've already mentioned, we can, we can identify with his family and even the religious leaders. And it's very common for us to be walking with Jesus. And, and, and even if we've been walking with him for many, 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 many years, to come across things that happen in our lives where we kind of scratch our hands and say, God, I don't understand why you're doing this. You're not making sense to me. But it doesn't matter how long you've walked with Jesus. It doesn't matter how well you know him. I can guarantee that there are going to be times where you, you feel that God just doesn't make sense. And it's those times that I submit to you that our faith is most challenged. It's those times when we begin to think, well, maybe I'm not understanding. Maybe I need to take this into my own hands. And it's, it's unavoidable. It happens because we're, we're human, because we're, we're, we're prone to failure, You might not be there now, but sooner or later, just wait. The time will come. Now, in today's story, it's his his family we can see here. They came to get him. Now, his family includes who? His mother. What's her name? Mary. It includes Mary. Now, think about this. Mary thinks that Jesus needs to be taken into custody. She thinks that he's out of his mind. Now, this is Mary. I, I don't think that you forget when an angel shows up to you and says the child inside of you that's being being, being formed is the Son of God. I don't think that's something you forget. Um, I don't think that, that you forget a, a virgin birth. So as I look at this passage, I can't help but think, wow, oh my goodness. Mary who raised him, Mary who had the angels come to him, Mary who, who, who bore him as a virgin, who, who treasured up and stored all these things in her heart, Luke, Luke tells us, Some point later in her life, Jesus is doing things that she can't get a grasp on. Things that don't make sense to her. They don't fit her paradigm. And so she comes to him with the rest of the family and says, Son, I think you're losing your mind. Think about that. And then in chapter 11 of uh, of Matthew... We have John the Baptist, John the Baptist, whom we've seen earlier in, uh, in, in, in Mark, um, John the Baptist, who foretold the coming of the Messiah, who, when the Messiah showed up, said, you know, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He baptized Jesus. He was there when the Spirit descended upon him, when the heaven opened up, and God said with that voice, this is my son. You know, John the Baptist, who later in Matthew 11, he's in prison, and word gets to him that Jesus is doing these things. These miracles are happening. The blind are seeing. The, the deaf are hearing. The lepers are being healed. People are being forgiven of their sins. And, and he tells his disciples, he can't go himself because he's in prison. He tells his disciples, hey, I want you to go talk to, talk to just Jesus. Talk to my cousin Jesus and find out. Just confirm, say, are you the one or is someone else coming? John the Baptist was confused at what God was doing. Mary is confused. And so are the disciples that that hung around Jesus at the time. The leader of the disciples, Peter, foot in mouth Peter. Peter sees Jesus doing all this. He's accompanying Jesus, and and he sees blind people healed, the lepers being healed. And and as they're on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem with his entourage for the last time. He pulls his inner circle together, and he says this. He says, hey, you guys need to understand this. I've been telling you but you aren't getting it. When we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be turned over to the authorities, and they're going to put me to death. And what does Peter do? He says, no, never, Lord. That'll never happen. And what does Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. Do you realize what Peter's doing? He's basically saying, God, you got this all wrong. Let me tell you. Let me give you a little bit of advice. Let me tell you how it's going to go down. Really, Peter? But you know what? All too often, I'm Peter. You're Peter. So I don't feel bad, and I don't, I don't feel so bad, and I don't want you to feel so bad there. When you struggle with these times when, when God doesn't seem to make sense, you're going to do that. I'm going to do that. If it hit Peter, if it hit John the Baptist, if it hit Mary, the mother of Jesus, it's going to hit you and me. So let's take some time here, a few minutes, and let's, let's step back and, and look at the rest of Scripture, what it's teaching, what it wants us to do, what we should do in those times where we cannot understand what God is doing. When God's plan makes no sense, there's five things we need to remember, and we need to hold on to these tightly. And the first one is the very most important one. We need to remember, He is God, we are not. Turn to the person next to you and tell them, say, he is God, you are not. <laughs> Newsflash. It's like, duh. Now, would you agree that we, we all know that with our head, right? And if I come up to you after the service today and I, and I say, are you God? No. Are you God? Are you no? No. Now, anybody that would say yes, okay, we need to have a talk afterwards, okay? <laughs> you say, oh, yeah, I, I, I know he's God and I'm not. I know it up here, but boy, sometimes it's hard to to know it and actually live it down here. At the end of the day, as as, as I've been saying, there is no middle ground. And when when life gets crazy, when it makes no sense, when when everything's outside the box that you expected, you're going to have to make a decision. Is he God or is he not? That's the decision we all make. And if we remember that he is God and I am not, and that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as the heavens are higher than the earth, then I'm going to go, well, you know what? I don't get this, but I'm going to hang in there. And if I forget that and try to take, take things into my own hands, it doesn't go too well. I'll speak from experience. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 30, he says this, he who is not with me is against me. There's, there's no middle ground here. We can't say, well, he's kind of God. He's got part of my life. You know, I'll let him have this part. I'll let him have Sundays, but not the other six days. Or I'll let him have this or that. Or, or my finances? Well, I can, I can you know, I've got a, I'm a CPA. Or I've got a finance degree. I can handle, I can handle finance. We, it's not like we can say I like most of his morality, but not all of his morality. I like the loving Jesus of the New Testament, kind of the Mr. Rogers Jesus, but I don't like that, that vengeance God in, that the Old Testament portrays. We can't pick and choose. He is God, and we are not. And Jesus continues in that verse, he says, and he who does not gather with me, he who doesn't work with me, scatters. If you want a God that fits your agenda and your paradigm, you don't want God. You don't want capital G God. You want little g God. And if you have a little g God who, who always fits into your agenda, into your paradigm, which you feel peace about, well, this is what I think God would do. You don't have a God. You have a mirror and an echo chamber. You have a mirror and an echo chamber. And there's a ton of people in our culture who really don't have a Jesus. They think they do. They don't have the God of Scripture. They have a mirror and an echo chamber, a God that's made in their own image, what they're telling themselves between their ears. And when life is going really well, it makes a whole lot of sense. But when life falls apart, we turn to that little G God. But when we turn to that little God, Our mirror, our echo chamber never solves our problems because we're the ones who create those problems. One of the stories that I have listed there in your life notes is is the story of Job. It's a famous story about a guy who had it all, had everything, a very righteous man who was following God, who, who had flocks and fields and children and a nice house and all that stuff. And, and this story about Job has made it into our culture. People who've never even opened up the Bible know about Job. They know about the trials of Job. And there's 42 chapters in the book of Job, 42 chapters. In chapter 1 and 2, we, we see him progressively losing everything until he has absolutely nothing and he ends up on, a, on an ash heap. He ends up on the garbage dump, you know, taking, you know, his, his skin is so bad, he's taking shards of pottery and scraping his skin in order to alleviate his pain. And then he's got three buddies who show up. And they sit down, and they start to explain to Job why all these things happen. Have you ever gone through a tough time and you had friends like that? You know, they come alongside, and rather than helping you, rather than consoling you, they're, they're going to point out with well, this this and If you've done this, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking it on you and then Job defends himself and he says man I, I'm righteous I, I, I follow God there's no way and he, the thing is we already know from the beginning of the story God himself has already told Satan the adversary look at my boy Job Job is a righteous man in God's eyes we know that because we've read the beginning of the story God gave us a glimpse into heaven but Job's trying to convince his friends that there's a, no way there's got to be some secret sin there's got to be something that, you, that you've done that's why the almighty is punishing you here and, and, and then God shows up. after all these chapters, God shows up at the end. He says, "I've got a few questions for you, boys. Can you explain this to me?" And he goes through all these things of, of nature and, and science or mystery, things that don't make sense to, to human beings. And his free, three friends are like, um, "Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know." And God says, um, "Well, you need to have Job pray for you." And then the book ends. The book ends there. And it's like what? I want a chapter 43, okay? I want a chapter 43 where God explains why all this stuff happened. Because I've got a lot of questions about, about the book of Job and why bad things happen to good people. And why if Job was so righteous, then why did you allow this to happen to him and, and and all this stuff? I want chapter 43. But God doesn't do it. He just shows up and says, You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Oh yeah, you're wrong too, Job. Just shut up. I'm God, you're not. It's an incredibly, incredibly important lesson for us to learn or for some of us to relearn. The number one thing to remember when God doesn't make sense is he is God and I am not. Number two is to remember this. God's plan is always the best plan. God's plan is always the best plan. God is not a cosmic consultant. But many times we treat him like one. We want God to bless what we're doing rather than seeking to do what God is blessing. God doesn't do consulting. He only does God. And if you want a consultant, don't expect him to show up. I've seen many times in in my role as a counselor over the decades, people who who they've got a cosmic uh, consultant God. And then they'll come up and they'll say, well, I just have peace about this. And, well, I just think it's going to work. Or I know I prayed. And God and I are good. We're good with this. They have all these things because they think that they're consulting with God. But, again, it's that mirror and echo chamber. Because God ain't there. His way is always the best way. On more than one occasion, I, I've been counseling folks. And, and I've seen, had an individual come to me and tell me that, that God wants them to leave their spouse. Even a Christian, they'll come to you and say, God wants me to leave my spouse because I found someone else to make me happy. It's happened. And there's other questions way behind that that we won't get into right now. But they they say, I just don't, or they might come and say, I just don't love him or her anymore. That's when I remind them, well, God says to love your spouse. And love is a choice. Love isn't the romantic comedies and Sorry Ladies Hallmark Channel. L- love isn't, that's not what love is. That's not what biblical love is, okay? It, it's nice in, in, in the novels, it's nice in, on the TV and all, but that's not real love. And, and it gives us a bad idea. Now, romance is okay, it, romance is a good thing. But that's not what the Bible talks about, what it talks about love, about agape love. Love is a choice. It's a choice to love someone, even when they might be unlovable. And thank God for that, because Luann's still with me after 41 years, okay? <laughs> love is a choice. And happiness, happiness is a choice too. Happiness is a choice. Love is a choice. That's what God wants us to do. I, I, I would tell people, learn to love your spouse. Choose to be happy with your spouse, Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. I've underlined a few key words. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Now this passage is about those times and, and those places where when God doesn't make sense, where he says go this way and we're absolutely sure that that if we do go that way, it's going to make things worse, that it's foolish. At that point, God says, don't lean on your understanding. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me to lead you. God's plan is always the best plan. There's never a time when you or I know better than God. Thirdly, sometimes the right response will bring wrong or what we consider wrong results. The way life normally works is that you do the right thing and the right thing will happen. But that's not what, when we struggle with understanding God. We struggle when we do the right thing and something bad, something that we don't like, happens. Like you're going down the road. Okay, it's Dillon Road. Going down Dillon Road, you turn on the Thousand Palms Canyon. And you're, you're trying to get to the bank to make the deposit for the chapel. And all of a sudden you see a flashing light coming the other way. Daggone it. So you pull over, and the highway patrolman pull, you know, pulls over behind you and comes out. Oh, yep, I know I was speeding, officer. And you know what the hope is, right? Where's that warning? Where's that warning? Nope, you get the ticket. Daggone it, did the right thing, but something bad still happened. Had to go through a driver uh, improvement uh, course online. Sometimes you'll actually do the right thing, and there are still some consequences, some bad stuff that happened. Consider the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. Joseph was a, a big figure in Genesis from chapter 37 all the way to the end. And when we first see Joseph, though, he's basically a, a, an arrogant, immature twit. Okay, can I say that about Joseph? You know, he's kind of an arrogant, immature twit. He's, the, he's the, 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 the child there that's daddy's favorite. Daddy likes him so much, he gives us this amazing technicolor dream coat, as it's been called. And so um, his brothers, he goes out to give a message to his brothers who are out working their tails off in the field while he's staying at home being daddy's pet. And, and they get so mad that they plan to kill him. But instead of killing him, they sell him into slavery in Egypt. So he ends up a slave in Egypt, and somehow he comes to his senses. And he had a maturing moment there. And instead of saying, man, I'm the favorite son, I'm, I'm privileged, I'm this, I'm that, how did I end up here? He says, well, you know what, I'm going to be the best servant or slave ever. Because from that point on, what we see of Joseph in the book of Genesis is he does the right thing. But as you read through Genesis 37 on, you're going to see that the wrong thing oftentimes happens to him, even though he's doing the right thing, but he still continues to do the right thing. He was apparently a pretty handsome guy, and and his master's wife had the hots for him, uh, sexual interest in him, and she literally grabs him and, and says, come sleep with me. And so he runs, and, but when he runs, he leaves his coat behind. She ends up holding his coat, and so she accuses him of sexual assault. So she grabs him, and she says, come sleep with me, and he ends up running, leaves his coat behind, and then she turns around and accuses him of sexual assault. And in doing all the right things in the right situation, even the morally right thing, guess what? He ends up in prison. He ends up in jail. Like, how does that happen? You know, he did the right thing, but got the wrong result. And as you read the rest of the story, that happens to him over and over and over again. But you know what ends up in the end? Joseph ends up as the second most powerful guy in Egypt. And it's a long story. You need to read it on your own. But it's like, how did, how, how did I get there? And, and, and you want to tell you, it, it's not something that Joseph could go along the way and say, oh, I understand what God's doing here. No. No. If I'm Joseph, I'm like, man, what is happening? I, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. But God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are my, my thoughts. I don't, I don't think Joseph ever sat down while all this was going on and said, well, you know what? If I keep doing this, I'm going to end up as the second most powerful guy, and I'm, I'm going to be able to move my family, entire family here when the famine hits in, in Israel, and then uh, I'm going to be able to protect them for a few centuries. Not a chance. Sometimes the, the right choice will bring bad things. In Hebrews chapter 11, that's what's been called the the hall of faith and great people who trusted God and what he said. And we tend to forget at the very end of Hebrews, it says, oh, by the way, there's some other folks who did the right thing and they were jeered at, they were stoned, they had to live on the run. Some of them were killed, some of them were sawed in two. And then it sums it up and says, all these people were to be commended for their faith, even though they did the right thing and saw bad results. God's plan is always the best plan because he is God and we are not, but sometimes the right response will bring bad results, at least for the time being. Fourth thing, you need to remember when God doesn't make sense that God often takes a long time to do what we wanted him to do quickly. God's timetable is not our timetable, and we need to get used to that. Uh, Think think about it, we're all really kids at heart. We're all children at heart. Have you ever noticed that a child's clock moves very slowly? If you're a child, Christmas can never get here. You know, Christmas can never come. It it takes three years for Christmas to come for some kids. And it's the same when you're on a road trip. Those of us that have had kids, you you all know, you know, how long till we get there? Six hours, 20 minutes later. Are we there yet? (laughs) You You know, 20 minutes after that, are we there yet? It doesn't matter what you say it's, it's never fast enough for a child and that's kind of how we live because we only know this this little life we only know what we know right now but the fact of the matter is God often moves more like a glacier than as an avalanche and we can read the book of Acts for example the story of the early church and and you could probably read the book of Acts in an hour and all these mighty things happen but it took over 30 years for those things to happen over 30 years Do you remember, a while ago, I read from Malachi for the lighting of the Advent wreath. Malachi was 400 years, and as I told you, it was 400 years of silence after Malachi, after the Old Testament closed out, before Jesus was born. Do you know what happened 400 years ago here? It's been 400 years since the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. That's a long time. And God was silent during that time. 2,000 years ago, Jesus promised to be back. And he's still not back yet. Waiting is part of the game. It's not part of the game if I was God, but sadly, back to point number one, you and I aren't God. We often want him and expect him to move much quicker than he is. 2 Peter 3 eight tells us this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Okay, Peter, you got one thing. Remember we studied 1 Peter last year? Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. And, and I wish he'd said something different than what he says here. Uh, I wish he'd said, don't forget this, God loves you. Well, that's true. That's true. Or don't forget this, God has a plan for your life. Well, that's true too. And there's a bunch of really cool things that he could, that he could say, but he says, this is the one thing I want you not to forget. With the Lord... A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Wrap your mind around that, okay? Think about it. This is incredibly important as a Jesus follower for us to get because his timetable is not our timetable, and vice versa. And remember, Peter's actually writing this to, to persecuted Christians, as we saw last year when we were looking at First Peter. He's writing, to he's, he's writing this to people that are being persecuted for their faith. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. They're probably saying, Jesus can't get here quick enough. We can also consider the story of Abraham in the Old Testament, Genesis 12. God shows up, says, Abraham, Abe, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give your descendants their own promised land. You're going to be blessed beyond anything. And the guy and his wife, Sarah, still have no children. And it's 25 years before the child shows up. And it's only after she's gone through menopause, the Bible says, uh, says, you know, says that he is as good as dead. Okay, I'm just quoting the Bible there. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to go, God, what's up with this? Did, didn't you promise? Yeah. Well, come on. Is, is, isn't, isn't it time, time yet? It's been 10 years. It's been 15 years. You know, this isn't likely to happen. And then this promised land thing, God basically shows him, says, "Oh, by the way, the people that are living there now, their sin needs to continue until it reaches its full full strength, and it's going to be 400 years before you go back and your descendants get that promised land." And I don't know about you, but if I get a Christmas gift and I open it and I can't use it, I can't touch it, I can't for 400 years. Wow, you know, I'm, I'm not a happy camper there. God's timetable is not our timetable. Here's the fifth thing, the last thing we need to remember when when God doesn't make sense. No matter what's happening, no matter how much the right thing, but the wrong response, no matter how long it's taking, in the end, we win guaranteed. Say that with me. We win guaranteed. And if we win guaranteed, who cares what the score is in the third quarter? Who cares what the score is in the third quarter? I've read the end of the book. We win, guaranteed, and that's what I camp on. We win. We should always judge God's goodness by the cross and by eternity, not by today and by the pain because it will always lead you to the wrong conclusion. And again, remember, I don't care what kind of walk with God you have. You could be Mary, the mother of Jesus. You can be John the Baptist. You can be Peter who is with him day in and day out, and you're gonna have moments when God doesn't make sense. And in those days, in those times, when, when we are in the midst of darkness, we need to remember the light. We need to remember what we've seen in the light. Otherwise, we're going to try and take things in our own hands. We're going to make goofy decisions that don't make sense in God's economy. And that's the economy that matters. I love what Apostle Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians four seventeen. He says this because he understands in the end, we win, Guaranteed. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And then he notes these light and momentary troubles. I've got the reference there in your life notes. He was beaten five times by the Jewish authorities with 39 lashes each, three times with rods. He was shipwrecked, not once, not twice, but three times. He was left for dead. He was stoned with rocks. He was imprisoned multiple times on the run as a fugitive to save his life. And he just goes on and on in this list. And I go, Excuse me, Mr. Paul, I don't consider those light and momentary afflictions. But he was looking at it in the grand scheme of things. Oh, if I look at it in light of eternity, yeah, that makes sense. That changes everything. God is at work even when we can't see it. The question is, are we going to let him do his work? But when he seems like crazy God, are we going to come and take him into custody as it was? Are we going to be like those theologians and say, oh, this can't be God. Let's put it in a box and deny God to be God. Let Jesus be Jesus. I can't guarantee you that it's going to be an easy road. Anybody that does, even if they're on TV, don't listen to them. No one can guarantee that it's going to be an easy road. For some, it'll be easy. For others, it'll be incredibly, incredibly, incredibly hard. But I can guarantee you it is the only road worth taking. And I can also guarantee that a few hundred years from now, there's not a single one of us that are going to look back and say, man, I'm so bummed. I did what Jesus said to do. Next week you might be. Four years from now you might be. But 200, 400, 4,000 years from now, no way. Because in the end, we win guaranteed. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at sbmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.